Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is Paula Gooder, a British theologian and a lay reader in the Church of England. Paula has a PhD from Oxford and is theologian in residence with the UK Bible Society. Paula, how do we know uh, who Jesus was, what he said, what he did? Well, of course, the main thing that we know about what Jesus said and did was the Gospels in the New Testament. There we've got four accounts of what, who Jesus was, who his friends were, what he did, um, and what his life looked like. Although only not a huge amount, we have a, a short, brief account of, in those, the Gospels. I mean, one of the questions is, so how do you know we can trust them? I mean, no, that's a huge area, mm. but in what sort of ways do you have confidence in those writings? Well, all sorts of ways, really. One of them is that there is, of course, external evidence to tell us that Jesus existed. So you've got texts like um, things written by Tacitus, a famous Roman historian, and Pliny, also a famous Roman historian, which alludes to and re refers to the historical Jesus. So that's one thing that kind of comes from the outside. But then you've got the inside stuff, um, the Gospels. And for me, one of the really striking things about the Gospels is, yes, they are four different accounts, and there are differences between them, but it's striking how much there is similarity between them, that actually you've got things that overlap between the four accounts. And that gives you confidence in, in what, what's written there. And we have, there's a lot of kind of copies, isn't there? Oh yes, huge numbers of copies. I mean, of course, the problem is that these copies come actually from quite a late date now. So um, probably from the 10th century onwards are where most of our copies come from. Um, but we do have a large number of copies, um, and even those that are before the 10th century, that we've got quite an, an increasing number, really, of those who are, that are reliable and quite early. So in the person of Jesus, we have someone that's really changed human history, which is the theme of this series. What was it about Jesus that made the most significant difference? Well, you could come at it in two different ways. Um, you could say it was who he was. Um, his manner, the way in which he engaged with people, the questions he asked, what he did, that was what changed people. But I believe that what really um, made the difference was that he was God incarnate. So therefore, of course, the two relate to each other because what would God incarnate be like? Well, he'd be like Jesus, wouldn't he? How do you, how do you know that he was? What, what was the key kind of event or pieces around that? Oh, no, there's lots. I mean, and I think one of the really important things about the Gospels is that the theme of Jesus being God runs all the way through. So you have um, themes in the birth narrative. You have the things that Jesus says. But for me, one of the really important things are the miracles. Um, and one of the things that happens these days is we get really caught up with whether the miracles happened and how they fit with science. And that can distract us from one of the things that is, for me, the most important thing. God is the God who created the world. So what's a creator going to do? Well, a creator's going to heal people. The God who was able to still the storms of chaos right at the dawn of time, well, that God's going to be able to still the storm. So actually the miracles are telling us that Jesus is God. They're just telling us in a slightly different way. And then there's the whole cross and resurrection story as well in, in all of that mix as well. Oh, yes, I'm profound. I mean, the thing that, of course, changes everything is Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, Jesus could have come and been a wise teacher, but he'd have just been a vaguely interesting person, wouldn't he, at that point? The thing that makes the difference is that Jesus died and rose again. Which is intriguing because in some ways he didn't leave very much, did he? I mean, there wasn't really that many people. He didn't travel very far. I mean, what did Jesus leave when he left this earth? Um, himself, really. Um, well, there's, again, there's lots and lots of different answers to it. He left who he was and what he did. And clearly he was so transformative that people were 
kind of inspired by it and took that on. But then, of course, within the Christian tradition, we want to say that he left the Spirit too. So, and it was the coming of the Spirit that made all the difference. Yeah, and then from that, the church first, I guess slowly at first, but then exploded across the known world at the time. Yeah, it was quite remarkable quite how quickly it ex exploded. And for me, it is that recognition that this tiny group of apparently utterly terrified disciples went and changed the face of the world. Now something has to be true about that, because they wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. And what do you put that down to then? Um, I would say it's down to the power of the Spirit. Well, there's, there's two answers again. There's always at yes. least two answers. So one of them is that um, it was true. Yeah. And they saw that it was true. And when people heard them talking about it, they heard that it was true. So there's something about the relationship with truth which is really important. But the second one is the power of the Spirit. That these people who could not have done it themselves, they wouldn't have been able to have the confidence to do that. They were inspired by the Spirit. And it was the Spirit that actually changed everything. Paul, we're looking at the area of leadership and hero figures. What were the leaders of Jesus' time like? Well, they were very strong military figures. They had to be, because the point about um, the Roman Empire was that it had to establish um, Roman principles across a very, very hostile area. So they were strong, they were fierce, they were military leaders. And for me, one of the really interesting things is to um, contrast Jesus' understanding of peace with the Roman understanding of peace. The Romans were very proud of what they called Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. And effectively what they'd done is they'd established this period of great peace and tranquility, mostly, across the Roman Empire. And they did it by squashing any kind of opposition. They came in hard, they came in fast with their armies, and they just wiped out anyone who disagreed with them. For me, contrasting that with Jesus is a really striking thing because Jesus is the one who listens and he asks people questions and if they disagree with him, he asks them another question. He does the opposite of that. Um, and there's something really quite striking, I think, in that, in kind of contrasting those two models. We'll come back to that. Let me ask, what about the kind of Greek gods? Did, did the way they see kind of religion, faith, deism, did that influence how they acted? Absolutely, and you've got to bear in mind this isn't just Greek gods, this is the vast majority of gods across um, that known area, the ancient Near Eastern gods, the Roman gods, the Greek gods. This was what worship and divine um, beings were like. So a lot of the creation narratives talk about creating the world so that they could feed the gods, the people were there just to be their servants and their slaves. The gods were kind of petty like human beings were, they had arguments with each other, they did random things, random acts of violence, and the purpose of a sacrifice was to keep these really petty gods happy. If you did it in the right kind of way, then they'd stop being quite so irritated and your life could go on and be much more peaceful. It sounds like a very chaotic way to see the cosmos, doesn't it? Well, and I suppose, in a way, um, it, it fits the way in which you see the world. If you look at the world, the world is quite chaotic. Um, and so actually to have a picture of the gods whom you worship being like that kind of fits in an, in an, in an odd kind of a way. Doesn't do it for me, but it clearly did it for them. Coming back to the person of Jesus, that, that whole idea of servant leadership, we talk about that a lot, but that was actually very unique to Jesus, wasn't oh, it? Oh, completely. I mean, there is um, no way anywhere in any of the other religions you have that notion that your God might come and wash your feet. I mean, it's, it's a bonkers idea on one level, and it's a bonkers idea that works perfectly, which is why it's so important. Why, why did it take off, if I can use those terms? How did it become part of, it's almost really a part of our culture now, the, the humble leader, as it were, who, who gives themselves. I, 
don't know whether it is a part of our culture. Okay. That's the thing that I think is it's really intriguing. I mean, I think it's something we know should be the case. Okay. But if you interrogate leadership, it's really hard to do. It's phenomenally difficult to do. So I think it's one of those kind of big splits that goes on um, in people's yes. minds. They know it ought to be the case, but they really struggle. So Paula, we have found humility is a virtue, which wasn't really the, the case in the time of Jesus. Oh, absolutely not. In the time of Jesus, um, humility was the opposite. It was a vice, really. It's that in order to be somebody important, you need to be appear in all ways to be important. Humility would have been just an awful idea for them. So it's, it's a real change in how leadership was framed up within the community. Absolutely. And the reason why that is, is because it works. It's, it's the right thing that happens when you have um, any kind of grouping together. If people can act to each other in humility, then actually it completely changes um, the atmosphere, the feeling, the way in which they relate to each other. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. Paula, what did Jesus have to say about forgiveness? Well, people often ask me, what do I think is the most radical thing that Jesus taught? And I would argue that one of the candidates for that would certainly be his teaching on forgiveness. You see, it was completely countercultural. In Greek and Roman thought, Forgiveness was a very odd notion. Um, in Hebrew thinking even, forgiveness had a very fixed place. Um, and what Jesus did was came in and blew that apart completely. So in Hebrew thinking, if you wanted um, a sin to be forgiven, you took your sacrifice to the temple and God would forgive that sin. But you've got to bear in mind that within the Hebrew sacrificial system, it was only, forgiveness was only available for sins you'd done by accident, inadvertent sins. There was no forgiveness for deliberate sin. And that begins to give you a sense of actually what Jesus is coming in and doing. So firstly, he comes in and says, forgiveness doesn't have to happen in the temple. Then he says, forgiveness doesn't have to happen just given by God. Then he says, any kind of sin can be forgiven. Then he says, now you go and do it. And when you kind of go out like that, you realise that he's just blown all expectations about forgiveness and sin and what that means um, apart entirely. And I think that's really inspirational. Let's look at that, that piece about Jesus offering forgiveness. So how does that happen? So how does Jesus give or uh, offer forgiveness to people? Well, you see, this is what was really radical. And what we kind of, when we read the Gospels, we get a bit confused by it. If you remember, the time when the Jewish leaders got most aerated about Jesus was when he forgave people. They said, you can't do it. It's not allowed. Um, it has to happen inside the temple by God. So actually, one of the things that Jesus was doing was simply saying, um, I am letting your sins go. The thing I love about the Greek word, it simply means, the word for forgiveness simply means let go. And there is, I think, something really profound about that. Um, the people who do the forgiveness let go of the sin. You just it's like a balloon, you let it go and off it goes. But then also the people who need forgiveness have to let it go as well. And there's that kind of double letting go, which is for me a really significant element of forgiveness. Paula, Jesus alluded towards the cross, that the cross was going to offer forgiveness. And then the early church talked about that the cross gave forgiveness. How does the cross give forgiveness? Well, one of the things that um, you've got to bear in mind is that actually the early church spent most of its time um, in the early years trying to work out what it means. 
So you want a really easy answer. There isn't a really easy answer. Okay. But it is worth just kind of putting a few things down because the few things really help. And uh, one of the things that I find really helpful is from Paul's writing, where he talks about how we're locked in a certain way of being. So. Um, when we're born as human beings, we become like Adam was. And he kind of Paul goes all the way back to the Adam story and the fall and the difficulties of sin. Um, and Paul asks the question, well, how do you stop being like Adam? The answer's really easy, you die. Once you die, you're no longer like Adam. And actually he uses that model for our understanding of how Jesus' death on the cross works. There are lots of others, but let's just kind of follow that one through because yep. I think it's a really interesting one. So, Jesus was the one who came and died representing Adam. So what that means is that he opened the gate away from sin and the old way of doing things. So what I often say is that actually what you need is both the death and the resurrection. We need to be really careful not to over-focus on just the death. The resurrection on its own doesn't work because you can't rise if you've not died. Um, but the death on its own doesn't work because actually if Jesus had just died, sin still wouldn't be safe. Um, sin still wouldn't be forgiven in quite the same kind of way. The point about the death and resurrection is that Jesus' death allows you out of the old way of being. Jesus' resurrection allows you into a new way of being. And Paul's vision is that we, when we become in Christ, when we accept Jesus as our Saviour and our Lord, we join in with his life. So his death allows us out of the old way of being who we were and into a new free way of being who we are. It's not important that Jesus says that we can be forgiven, but as you alluded to before, it's that whole call to forgive others as well. What, what gives us the ability to do that? Um, because we've been forgiven. It's, it's very much a model of example. So, and there's that lovely um, parable which I really find kind of gets right to the heart of it. So there's a judge who forgives somebody um, a debt and then that person who's been forgiven their debt goes out and can pull somebody in who owes them something and can screws the money out of them. And the point is that if we think forgiveness is in any way important, we've got to do it ourselves. Because what we have been forgiven, we therefore need to go and show that forgiveness to other people. It's kind of a, it's a both and. So when people pray the Lord's Prayer, I always want to say, you are sure you want to say this, aren't you? Because actually in that we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And we often hear it the other way around, is that um, you forgive us and we'll forgive them. Well, actually, we ask it in the other kind of way around. Just like I've ju forgiven you for anything you might have done, then you can forgive me. So therefore, actually, our forgiveness of other people is kind of right at the bedrock of our relationship with God. We must forgive other people and then God will forgive us in the same kind of way. And that I find entirely scary. Absolutely. Tell me about what Jesus would have said about power and the use of power. Um, Jesus is very clear on the use of power, um, which is that um, we should be humble and servant-like. Um, and I think the place where I would always go to explain an understanding of power is um, Paul's writings in Philippians, where Paul talks about Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not consider equality to be God as something to be um, clutched at. The Greek word is kind of the idea of, kind of holding it to yourself. Power is something that you have in your open hands, that you let go. Um, and then you discover that as you let it go, it comes back to you in much more influence than ever you had before. Sometimes we think power is military power or political power. And 
your average person in a Western country feels like they don't. But there is a fair bit of power just in a person in a, in a wealthy country. Oh, I think there's a vast amount of power um, in everybody before we even get into the wealthy country. Actually, I have power in the way that I relate to you. I have power in the way in which I engage in relationships. I have power over how I decide to do things, what things I choose to do and what things I don't choose to do. Actually, our life is just riven with power and it's about choosing how we um, use that power is for me the really important thing. Which, is, which suggests that the issues about power is something for all of us to deal with. Absolutely. There is nobody who has no power. Um, say the other way, everybody has power. And therefore, Jesus' command about how we use power, how we think about it, um, how we love each other, how we act in humility, it's true for all of us, from the greatest to the least. Paula, give us a picture of what experience would have been like to be a woman in the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' time. Well, as all questions, you're asking a much more complicated question than you think. Um, it all depends on what kind of culture you're living in and what kind of um, level of influence you've got within that culture. One of the really interesting things is that women's experience in certain parts of the Roman Empire was very different from the women's experience in other parts of the Roman Empire. So, for example, in Egypt, women could be in great authority, think Queen Cleopatra. So she was able to have her own inheritance, she could be very powerful. There are other women, I mean, in other parts of the Roman world, who had much less influence. By the time you get into the centre of Rome, women only really had influence through their husbands. Um, but the really interesting thing, I think, about um, the Roman world is that within the household in the Roman world, women had much less influence. Um, there were occasions where you could find more influence outside in certain parts of the Roman world. In great contrast, in Jewish society, women had no influence outside of the home in Jewish society, but they had almost entire sway within the home in Jewish society. So it's a kind of a complex question, um, which can be asked in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, and recognise that this will also be complex as well, but families and how it functioned? Well, the thing you've got to do in order to understand um, families across the Roman world, whether it be in Jewish or Greek or kind of, kind of more kind of closely Roman um, structure, is you have to dump 2.4 children out of your head completely. <laughs> families are huge organic networks. Um, and one of the really significant things is that there were a difference of relationship in the families, but there were wives and there were biological children, there were adopted children, there were slaves, there were slaves' children, there were servants and servants' children, there were clients. So you're talking about huge families, kind of hundreds in the family, um, not 2.4 children, as we get in our kind of our idea. Yeah. If you, as a woman in that particular society, especially around the time and the place of Jesus, if you had a problem with how you were being treated, what would you do? do you, did you have recourse to the courts? There was nothing you could do, really. Um, there are a few examples, um, both in Roman society and in Jewish society, of women who attempted to um, do something about their situation. But for the most part, you put up with it. Wow. What about children? What was the place of a child? Well, it's fascinating and it's one of the things that I think makes us feel really uncomfortable is that there weren't, wasn't really a place for children in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and it's one of the kind of really striking features is that children were of course there and I'm sure they were loved by their families, but um, they had no influence and no status. It's why Jesus in the Gospels put children in the middle when he wants to say, imagine being the least important person you can imagine, he brings a child, which is very different from our culture. So the way Jesus taught 
women, as you mentioned, mm. children, is quite new, isn't it? It's very different to oh, the prevailing culture. It's strikingly different. You know, the fact that Jesus will have conversations with women on their own, you know, the Samaritan woman by the well, um, he has w women who supported him. Um, we find in Luke's Gospel that there were women who actually paid for him and his disciples to survive. Um, he had women who were called disciples. Um, it's a completely different attitude to women that you would normally have had in the society of the time. And that, that, that created a shift, didn't it? Because the early church picked up that attitude of Jesus. Yes, indeed. Um, and, and you can find, I mean, one of the things that we look back and we say, oh, that's not very good. But actually, when you compare it to how it would have been otherwise, women had a remarkably high place within early Christian society. And they became leaders within the church and, and, and a kind of a key I guess, um, a leading edge to the church's growth and influence. Oh, very much so. And some of the really significant people in the earliest Pauline communities were women. You've got people like Prisca, otherwise known as Priscilla, um, who was hugely influential in the early communities. You've got Junior and Phoebe and Euodia and Syntyche. I could go on and on. There's loads of women who have really quite significant roles within the early communities. Now, if, if we go on a little bit further, like several centuries mm. from the time of Jesus, then you had orders of women, nuns, etc. Now sometimes we look at that as kind of these poor ladies away by themselves, but that was actually very influential and, and released them, didn't it, in, well, in odd ways? Absolutely, because if you were a woman who got married, then immediately there's a question about your life expectancy, because childbirth was really, really very difficult. You were binding yourself into a certain way of being about caring for a household, caring for children, and it's something that of course we think is really important these days. But actually, in those days, it meant that these women could um, progress much more in education, they could have a much greater influence. Actually, it was for them a great freeing decision to join a convent. So how have women influenced the growth and development of the church? Oh, in enormous ways. Um, women were there from the very earliest start in the earliest communities, leading and um, teaching people. They um, influenced the church through being, uh, through being in convents and those kind of things. But I think one of the really striking features um, that you find throughout the Christian history is that the vast majority of mystics were women. So those who were having remarkable religious experiences and talking about their religious experiences. Now most of those, not all of them, but most of them were women. So I think there's something about the way in which the women, because they were probably outside of the power structures and outside of the influence were able to see things more clearly and I think there's a remarkable strand to trace there of women's um, influence in that kind of way. Right now you know in, in current culture the church is often sort of portrayed as misogynist and Paul had an issue he should have got over. How do you see that issue? Actually I don't think Paul was at all misogynist um, and I think it's largely down to the way in which we've read the text later. Um, the thing you have to do when you read Paul in order to understand what's going on is to recognise that there were lots of women in leadership when he was writing those letters. So he's not saying it's not allowed. What he's saying is, let's think about it in the context of something that is allowed. And then it all becomes different. The other thing that we make the mistake of doing is there are three texts that talk about women, which people kind of cite regularly. And what happens is you read them as though they're all the same text. And what you have to do is pull them apart and realise that what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 is about women prophesying. What he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 is the chaos that would break out in churches um, when women kept on going, what did he say, what did he mean? Um, and actually how that began to kind of affect church life. 
And then 1 Timothy 2, one of the things I'm very passionate about is Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, let women learn. Um, and I think the better translation of the next bit is, let women learn in a quiet place. Um, if you talk to any woman with young children and you said, does the command to let women learn in a quiet place sound restrictive in any way? They'd all go, oh no, please, I would love to learn in a quiet place. Um, of course, the text takes a little bit more exegesis than I've just done, but actually you get that sense that the way in which it has been read, um, I think has been read against the grain of what Paul originally meant. Do you think the church should be fearful of, of the feminist movement? Not at all. Um, I think the feminist movement is about recognising that everyone created by God bears the image of God um, and that you shouldn't prejudge before someone you encounter somebody um, about whether they in fact do bear the image of God. And I think what's going on in the feminist movement is that women are beginning to say actually you need to take this a lot more seriously. The problem that happens is that when a pendulum has swung in one direction to pull it back in the other direction takes a lot of effort and therefore you can become more strident than you would be in other ways. Um, you shouldn't be fearful of the tone because the underlying message I think is really important. And Paul, I want to ask you, for you, how do you see Jesus as a game changer? Um, I would see him as an entire game changer. He the first thing is that he came to earth as God. So he reminded us that earth is good, our bodies are good. Being a human being is an ultimate God desired, uh, an ultimate good desired by God. Um, he then transformed the whole of the world in which he lived, he forgave sins, he brought us hope and joy and the resurrection vision of where we might go. Um, and then he kind of gave us a vision of how we can be in the future. Um, I would say the world is completely different because of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax deductible and non-tax deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Well,